Welcome to Conservation Today. We interview people about our environment in Douglas County, and I am your host, Francis Etherington. Today, we are going to listen to a Cascadia Wildlands Wild Chat webinar that was given on April 7th. It is called Community Resistance to Jordan Cove. As our listeners know, the Jordan Cove project was approved by the federal government last month. They determined that a foreign corporation, a company from Canada, wanting to ship foreign fracked gas to a foreign country using Oregon as their stepping stone is in the public interest. Of course, we disagree with them, and the state of Oregon disagrees with them too. The export terminal is slated to be built uh, near Coos Bay, in the Bay of Coos Bay, and the pipeline to feed it gas will come from near Klamath Falls, a small town called Malin, Oregon. It will travel 230 miles across southern Oregon in our fire-prone country to bring the gas to Coos Bay. It requires a a 95-foot-wide clear-cut that entire distance, and some of the clear-cut has to be up to 150 feet wide. Of course, this goes through our endangered species habitat, and there's a lot of problems with it. We're going to hear more from the panelists on the wild chat. Let's start that now. Thank you for making the time to be on this call today. For those of you who I don't know, my name is Sam, Sam Kropp. I'm the grassroots organizer with Cascadia Wildlands, um, and you all are here tonight for our very first ever Cascadia Wild Chat. Um, so Cascadia is an organization that's dedicated to defending and restoring the wild places and ecosystems of the Spire region, and our tactics include work in the forest, in the courts, and in the streets. Um, and so we developed this wild chat program as a way to essentially stay connected with our community and continue to build our movement during these really difficult and uncertain times. Um, one thing that a lot of us have noticed is that while much is slowing down in the world during this pandemic, um, sadly one thing that is not slowing down is the course of extractive industry. Um, and what that means is that our movements in resistance also cannot afford to slow down either. Um, and thankfully we're not. All these amazing folks are on this call today and so many folks are engaged in the struggle. Here today we're starting off with a discussion about Jordan Cove and the reason for that is because Jordan Cove is one such project that is actually being forced ahead um, during this pandemic. Just a few weeks ago in the month of March the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission approved permits for the Jordan Cove pipeline, um, essentially green lighting it to move ahead against the will of Oregonians and despite the fact that the pipeline has not received any of the necessary state permits that it needs in order to move forward. Um, so this is just one such example of fossil fuel projects that are being hurried along by the federal administration um, even during this time when a lot of people are focusing on primary emergencies. Um, the good news is that there is an amazing, beautiful, and vibrant campaign um, and a coalition that has been working tirelessly to halt the Jordan Cove project. And we think that we are going to win, and um, that is because of the work of all of the amazing folks who are a part of this movement. Um, in the coalition, there are tribal members, 
commercial fishermen, youth, health professionals, community leaders um, from all four impacted southern Oregon counties um, and regional allies. So it is a quite a mighty coalition. Needless to say, um, community-led resistance is powerful. And we're here um, this evening to talk a bit and dig into this issue of the Jordan Cove project with um, some folks who make up that coalition who are really, I think, um, just foundational movers and shakers in the coalition. Um, so joining us today for this discussion are Deb Evans, who is an impacted Southern Oregon landowner who has been fighting the pipeline for over 15 years. Kaila Farrell-Smith, who is a Klamath Modoc artist and inspiring anti-pipeline activist. And Gabe Scott, who is the legal counsel for Cascadia Wildlands and the No LNG Coalition. Um, so just um, quick before we get started, for those of you who are just very new to this and learning now about the Jordan Cove Pipeline Project, um, this project is a 229-mile pipeline proposal and associated LNG terminal slated for Southern Oregon and the port of Coos Bay. If pushed through, this project would be the number one climate polluter in the state of Oregon. It would threaten the drinking water for thousands of Oregonians. It would harm key habitat for threatened species. It would threaten historic tribal territories and destroy fishing and outdoor recreation opportunities all along its route. And so again, um, every single state permit that Jordan Cove has applied for has been denied, um, but the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission recently greenlighted this project. So we're in a really interesting place right now, especially against the backdrop of this pandemic. Um, we so appreciate all of you for joining us, for being a part of this struggle. Um, and hope that this moment, um, this video is reaching you all feeling healthy and really well supported. Our format will be about 12 minutes of interview with each of our three amazing panelists, and then we'll have some time for questions at the end. Our very first panelist today is Deb Evans. Um, and Deb and her family bought timber property in Klamath County in 2005, only to find out a month later that it is in the path of the then proposed import Pacific Connector gas pipeline. So for 15 years and three versions of this proposal, Deb and her family have been opposed to the risk this pipeline poses, not just to their land and property rights, but to all of Oregon. They have spent time and money to raise awareness and connect with other landowners, many of whom are elderly and on fixed income, to protect basic constitutional rights for what is a land grab by deep-pocketed oil and gas corporations running over ordinary citizens, all to allow Canadian gas to be shipped to foreign markets across our properties. Deb, thank you for your ongoing and tireless work in the struggle. You are amazing. Um, you have been fighting this project since the very beginning. I'd love to start by just having you tell us the story of how you got involved with fighting this project. Sam, thank you so much, um, and thanks to everybody who is on this presentation. Um, it's been an honor to just be invited to be a part of this group, and it's an emotional journey for us. Um, I know it is really probably for everybody on this call. Um, I think as a landowner, uh, it it becomes this up and down battle of how to protect your property, how to protect what you love, really trying to understand um, 
who who you are and what the damage that this project can do, how how encompassing it is. Um, so Sam gave a little bit of it. We bought this property um, over in Klamath County as a as an investment, but it also was a property we wanted to put a house on. And it's uh, right next to uh, within a mile of Mountain Lakes Wilderness. It's uh, sandwiched between beautiful old growth timber of Wyneema National Forest along a a 18 mile road, Clover Creek Road, that has been designated as a utility free corridor. So at the time we bought it, we were thinking we were buying a piece of property that uh, we would have in our family for a long time. We would probably put a smaller house over there and go and visit and do a lot of um, exploring in that area. Literally within a month of buying the property, we went over there, flagging was up, and we're like, what is this? And that was our introduction to what was then an import pipeline. And we had, like most people, had no clue what to even do with that information. So we uh, talked to a, a attorney friend of ours in Alaska. He said, hire an attorney. And we did. So round one, basically for us, was hired the attorney and then tried to forget about it, raising our kids. We just thought it was stupid and who would do this? And, and that kind of explains a lot for, you know, the typical landowner. It's like we had no background to know what this even meant. Um, and then round two started. We didn't want to pay for the attorney anymore. We didn't even know. Actually, we didn't even know round two had started. That's, that's how it went for us. And we decided not to hire the, an attorney. And so my husband was monitoring it, Ron, uh, and, and in... Um, Really, it was December of 2014, I'll never forget, when the FERC hearing in round two happened uh, the, on the draft EIS. We showed up not knowing any other landowners, and there were 300 people in the room. And we were blown, this was Medford, we were blown away. And that really was the start of us fighting this pipeline uh, in earnest. And we haven't stopped since then. So it's been exhausting, um, just a little bit of, you know, detail we were offered at that round $2,000 for the property we had just bought, which we had paid $1,000 an acre. It would have taken five acres of this property. So we were offended by the offer. We didn't want to take the money anyway. Um, and so that really is sort of in a nutshell, bringing us up to, to round three, which I'll talk about a little bit now, but I also want to talk about it a little later. So I'll just finish this this portion by saying in the in the year in the years literally that have transpired um, these landowners that we have met uh, have become family we mostly talk to them almost daily many of them um, we are in contact with them we all share um, a commonality that we do not want this pipeline and that we are united in our opposition and i think one of the most amazing stories out of this is that we are across the spectrum politically and it has put us in the same room together we have learned from each other we we have a, probably our greatest strength is the diversity of the landowners who are in the fight and the differences that we bring to to this fight in connecting with state, connecting with uh, federal, uh, the federal process, connecting with everything. We have tried to leave no stone unturned and are incredibly grateful for everything that the coalition has been doing in their shoes to try to stop the project with us. Thank you for that, Deb. That is an incredible story. 
Um, I want to dig into a little bit more of the reasons why landowners are opposed to this pipeline, specifically as a group. Um, I know that in 2016, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission denied the last version of the Jordan Cove pipeline project because it was deemed not in the public benefit um, with specific concerns around the use of eminent domain for private landowners. Um, and I know that despite FERC's recent approval, many still argue, of course, that the pipeline is still not in the interest of the public. So as a landowner, um, what are your specific concerns having to do with this pipeline coming through your backyard? So our, our specific, because we have a timber piece of property, um, we have concerns about wildfire risk. We have concerns about, um, uh, well, I, actually what I'll do, I think, is go here for a second, because this is sort of a compilation of a bunch of different concerns. Some are ours personally, um, in fact, many are ours personally, and, and a lot of this is a, a compilation of different landowners who have said, this is, these are my issues. And I think across the board, um, we're all incredibly worried about the impacts to what we already have. So our wells, the water that crosses our properties, the trees, in our case, um, what is it going to mean to take those trees out when we actually are, that's the investment that we made was in trees. Um, and ag land, there's a lot of concern around, you know, going seven to nine feet deep through ag land and turning over that soil. We have landowners that have tile in their fields and it's going to destroy their drainage tile. Um, we have a lot of concern around being in the blast zone, which is considered 600 to 900 feet from the pipeline. What happens, uh, we watch pipelines blow up in other parts of the country, so there's there's that concern. Uh, we lose control of our easements, right? I mean, most of us are rural. We live out in the middle, some of us in, in the middle of nowhere on purpose. We want that. We don't want people on top of us, so there's great concern that this is going to um, grant 24-7 access to a company that we don't even want to be there. Um, they can build roads if they need to to access it. They can use our own roads to get to the pipeline. Uh, it's not just the right-of-way that they have to stay on. So there's all these subtleties that come with this order. Um, it devalues our property. We've already seen, I mean, one of the really frustrating things to landowners is even people who say, well, I'll just sell my property so that I don't have to, because I can't live with a pipeline on my property. Um, they're having trouble selling their property. They have to disclose that this is a possibility. And so it has literally devalued their, um, one of their major assets that they owned, so they can't even get out from under it in some cases. Um, we've had to deal with aggressive land agents, and believe me, they will tell you lots of different things, many that are not true. We've had great concern about our elderly landowners who are um, subject to either wanting to believe them or just being misled or taken advantage of. And it especially seems to be true of some of the women who are elderly and single. Um, the threat of eminent domain has definitely been on everybody's mind. And up until the FERC decision, of course, we didn't have that. Now we face that in spades because that certificate of public convenience and necessity has now granted them the right to take our property any day. We could be, we could receive notice on our doors anytime. 
we know that. And we, um, we have landowners who have never hired an attorney in their life and they're struggling with what does it mean? How much am I going to have to put out? Um, so adjacent landowners, they get, <laughs> they get nothing, right? So in some cases, adjacent landowners, the pipe goes right next to their house or right next to the, the edge of their property, but they don't get any benefit. They don't get any compensation whatsoever, and yet they get all the risks. So that's, that's a concern of some landowners. Um, there's a huge difference between easements. Uh, so the timber companies have easements often that are 80 100 plus pages long with all of the details spelled out of what the company can and can't do on their properties. And most landowners who have signed easements um, have probably a three or four or five page document. So there's no comparison to what people are signing uh, and the protections. Um, another impact is, you know, these, these easement contracts leave leave the landowners uh, vulnerable to additional pipelines and i don't know how many people have you know dug into the order and what they this company is actually asking for but they just got received permission not only to have their 20 year precedent agreement for shipping gas on the pipeline they've asked for uh, a, an okay for 10 additional two two groups of 10 additional years so we're really talking about 40 years of of gas through a pipeline for a one-time payment for us to give them easement to do that so a lot of people are opposed to that and we just think that it's it's not for a public use it's for a private company's um, gain and that that's a violation of property rights so that in a nutshell is um, is some of the some of the, the the well general concerns and then i guess this list i don't have to go through every bit of it but i think you know the the safety concerns are huge for landowners um, a lot live on the properties where this pipeline is coming by we do not ours is like i said a timber piece of property and our home is way far away from the pipeline but what it's done for me is as i've met these landowners um it just pulls at your heartstrings. Honestly, there are people that, you know, could be my parents. There are people who could be, you know, my best friends who are facing these impossible situations where the company has wrapped the pipe, you know, on two sides of their house. And you look at all of Southern Oregon and you think, why in the world are you having to do this to some people who live out in the middle of nowhere when you could go up on a timber piece of property or you could figure out another way around it? But they have total disregard for that. Um, so there's these huge distances between block valves. That's a concern because of the volume of gas that we're talking about. Think of the Rogue River, those of you who are down here in Southern Oregon, um, and the flow of the Rogue River. If you were standing there in Shady Cove and watching the water go by, the average eight hours of water flowing on the Rogue River is the volume of gas that would be in the section of pipeline that's near where our property is. Um, so those, you know, we're, we, my biggest fear where I live and also for this property in Klamath County that we own is wildfire. How in the world is bringing a high pressure pipeline leaving me of this fear that there's going to be real problems with um, wildfire, whether it's caused by the pipeline or it's caused by lightning or some other thing going over the pipeline, it's equally terrifying for us. 
I think, you know, there's going to be, they've already said that, you know, they're going to have to blast. Um, our property has, you know, trees, but it also has a lot of rock. They're not going to just dig with the average um, equipment to get this pipe in the ground. So there's going to be high potential of 100 miles of the pipeline route that's going to require blasting. What is that going to do? For the people who have wells, there's a huge um, um concern that their drinking water will uh, either be contaminated or be non-existent. And we have reasons to, to think that because over in Coos County where the 12-inch line went in years ago, a gas pipeline, people lost their wells over there and had to re, uh, they had the company redig wells, but the problem there was they got way less production out of the well. And now those wells that were redug in that pipeline are now in the path of this pipeline. So it's, it's a really difficult um, situation. And just this slide, I just, I include it in part because honestly, anybody who ever heard anything about the San Bruno, California pipeline um, explosion, it was, you know, to compare it with Pacific Connector, it was a 30 inch pipeline, not 36. It was 400 running at 400 PSI, not the six, the 1600. <laughs> that this pipeline can run at. The blast zone was 900 feet. In that case, it killed eight, it destroyed 38 homes. Took an hour, an hour to figure out what it even was. They thought an airplane had gone down into the neighborhood. So we're just thinking of where we live in Southern Oregon in this dry uh, climate and hotter now, longer, drier seasons. We already know we're seeing more uh, wildfires where I live, and we just can't even imagine why we are bringing this kind of risk into our properties. So I think, I don't know if that completely answered your question, um, Sam, if you need me to, you know, say what other concerns are, I can, but. Um, I think that was a great answer, and I especially appreciate you talking about the safety concerns. I know that um, not only are there, you know, concerns for pipeline explosions and wildfire, but there's also, of course, concerns for those who live in Coos Bay near the site of the proposed liquefaction terminal. Um, which is also obviously a um, very um, dangerous place to put a terminal of that size, um, obviously on off of the coast of a place where there's a subduction zone. Um, so definitely safety has been a really big issue on all of our minds for folks who are living in the path of this proposed project. Um, and I know that even now, as the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission has approved this permit, there are still over 90 landowners who have refused to sign easements. And that's really inspiring. And so I guess I'm hoping um, by way of our second to last question, um, what, so this, this group of landowners has essentially, as you've mentioned and talked about a bit already, is composed of a really, a, a lot of folks, um, a lot of folks who are elderly, a lot of folks who are low income, a lot of folks from rural communities, um, conservative folks, um, who, and a lot who have never just never dealt with a convoluted legal process like this. So hoping that you can just um, share with us a little bit about what, what has the landowner organizing looked like in opposition to Jordan Cove? Um, and what are maybe some of the challenges that you all have had to overcome um, given those demographics that I just mentioned? So I think now the or I mean I guess if if I'm understanding your question you know the organizing at this point has involved um, trying to 
communicate with landowners um, what is going on and um, how they can advocate for themselves. So there's been a lot of, like all of you, there's been a lot of letter writing. There's been a lot of um, trying to connect. We were able to hire a, an organizer, Maya, for a while to go um, door to door where we couldn't always get to all of those landowners. We, we communicate quite regularly with landowners through mail, um, but you know, for those who respond back to us, we might have their email, we may have their phone number, but but mostly we have mailing addresses. So some don't respond, um, but you're right, we do have over 90 landowners who have not signed. And the way we track that is we have gone almost monthly to the four counties and check what easements are recorded and then we track those easements so that we can keep a database and know what's going on and um so you know that has been key in keeping sort of the landowners um informed about possible ways to advocate for themselves whether that be at the local level the state level or um or the federal level um and i think that you know, those kinds of things are the things that there's about seven of us who are both, we sort of call ourselves the landowner advisory board, but it's seven of, you know, pretty active landowners who are engaged at, at, at multiple levels of the process, right? And when I talked earlier about politically diverse, you know, what we've understood about each other is that we each bring things to the fight that we can um, use in sort of pre presenting ourselves to the media, right? So we had a group put together um, a website called Our Land, Our Lives, and we've continued to try to get the message out about the impacts to these landowners. And for, you know, anybody on this presentation, if you haven't gone to that website, I highly recommend it. There's videos on it. There are, um, you know, uh, there are stories, uh, landowner stories, um, 36 Inches, the movie is another uh, website to go to. If you go to 36 Inches, the movie, I think is what it is is.com um, you will see testimonials and a lot of those are also from landowners um, help me Sam was there another part to your question I think I only heard probably part of it um, but yeah maybe by way of the, the last bit Deb is there anything else that folks can do to support you all as landowners right now I um, I think this well it's not exactly in order but um, I think that Ways that they can help is to go to that website, understand what the stories are. Um, if you know landowners, talk to them, ask them how you can help them directly. Um, you can advocate for us. Maybe a lot of you saw Governor Kate Brown's um, uh, declaration at the end of her comments about the FERC decision to really um, stand by us as landowners and not allow condemnation if uh, you know without state permits and. You know, that's an, an incredible offer. Um, I think advocating that the state help protect landowners in that. And then we have, um, our landowners are facing those, I mentioned this earlier, I'll mention it again. There's a group that we started and it's, um, landowners started, it's called Greater Good Oregon. It's a nonprofit, it's not a 501c3, but we do have a fiscal sponsor. Um, so if you know of people that are willing to donate money, either, um, you know, it can be tax deductible, that's fine. Uh, that would happen through the OurLandOurLives.org website and you just hit the donate button when you go to that website. And that takes you to um, a landing page that is our fiscal sponsor, Bold Education, and that money is directly 
goes to support landowners and in particular their legal defense because the the cost that landowners are facing now starts at about $2,000 and could go well over $10,000 per landowner just to defend uh, the right, you know, try to stop the right to take in the condemnation proceedings and or trying to um, go through the motions to stay in the fight as long as possible with an appraiser to get just compensation. And the reason we're asking that help, for help for landowners to stay in the fight, one, they're tired, two, they financially are not sure that they can do it. And, and we know they don't want the pipeline, but we're worried that without financial help, they will be put in a position to take an, an offer from the company um, just because they're not sure what the, the legal fees are going to cost them. We do have, though, I want to mention this, we do have pro bono um, services from an attorney group in the Scannon Center out of Washington, um, thanks largely to Bill Gow and work that he did back in D.C. for us. Um, and the Scannon has been great and they will be challenging the FERC decision, um, which is great. And that is um, no money off of our backs, but it's the eminent domain proceedings that we have to fight here locally until we can get the project killed for, for good. And that's where we need help from, from the coalition members and people on this call. Thank you, Deb, for all of your work, um, for just continuing to fight this fight through all of this. Um, and everyone, just to reiterate, um, I know that now is a strange time to ask for donations, but if you do have the ability, this is just an incredible, incredible effort um, that deserves all the support we can offer it. We are going to take a short break. This is Conservation Today, and we have been listening to the April 7th Wild Chat webinar from Cascadia Wildlands on community resistance to the Jordan Cove project. All the websites just mentioned about landowner impacts and donation opportunities are listed in the description below to this podcast. I am your host, Francis Etherington, and we will be right back. We are back with Conservation Today. We are listening to the Wild Chat webinar on community resistance to Jordan Cove. As we continue with this, uh, Sam Crop with Cascadia Wildlands is talking. Moving on uh, to our next panelist, Gabe Scott is here um, and is the in-house counsel for Cascadia Wildlands. Since being admitted to the bar in 2012, Gabe has worked tirelessly to defend forests and wild places throughout the Cascadian bioregion. Gabe is currently a member of the No LNG legal team and is engaged in ongoing efforts to legally challenge the Jordan Cove pipeline. Um, so I'm hoping, Gabe, that you can start off by helping us to untangle the messy bureaucratic landscape of state and federal permits that are needed for this project. Could you tell us a little bit about the legal landscape of the fight against Jordan Cove LNG and make sense of all of this for us? Yeah, it's um, the legal landscape's really complicated. As you say, it's very intimidating kind of by design as Deb was talking about. It's, it's super intimidating for anyone to dive into. Um, it, because it's such, this is such a large project, kind of all of the environmental laws come into play. 
Um, so there's just a huge array of permits. All, you know, all of the agencies just about um, are involved in permits. So, but, but this, is, this project falls into the Natural Gas Act, which rigged the system, I guess it's fair to say, um, in a few ways that kind of really simplifies uh, the jungle, like the really complicated jungle bureaucratic landscape. Um, first of all, it established its federal preemption is a primary principle at play here. That if the federal government decides something, that overrides whatever the states or anyone below that says. Um, so that's that's clearly part of the legal landscape. That is that it involves attempts at maximizing federal preemption over states and localities. Um, secondly, it involves just as a matter of course, it now imminent domain, just taking people's private property. That's just baked into the the system now, and the sequence in which legal claims are heard um, is gamed in a number of ways that make it even harder for landowners to assert their rights to the position where you know it often is the case where there's work taking place on people's land where the people are still in court fighting over over their land, um, let alone that we've gotten to talk to anything about like climate or or anything um, you know priorities like that. Thirdly, is that, is that it, there are all these fast track procedures. There's a rule called Fast 41 that has put everything on um, timelines or different perceived timelines. Um, and so as a general rule, a lot of things are fast tracked. So it's a real challenge for, for all the agencies to process things in time, for anyone to process things in time. Fourthly, it's all very political. Approving this pipeline was a Trump campaign promise. Um, and the promise is now filled um, because in the end, the FERC is sort of the agency with a call to make with the, with the call. Um, and the call was made on just partisan lines. It's just in, on a stacked FERC. For those who want to dive into the sort of the FERC process, I'd encourage you to look at the dissenting opinion from the FERC commissioner. It was really striking to hear that from a FERC commissioner, um, these criticisms of how sort of rigged the system is. Um, and so that's sort of how the decision's made. That's the sort of cynical view. But underneath that, there are states' rights. We still, we still live in America, kind of. There is still rule of law. And so there are states' rights, especially under the Clean Water Act, which is a thing that you hear about. And that's, this is one of the cases where, why things like that are so important. Indigenous tribes, federally recognized tribes, still have rights that they can and do insist on. Um, unfortunately, really, the rights that they have is more consultation than rights, you know, say so or veto power over things, but they do have meaningful rights and they're asserting them and those are important. There's also local land use. And I flag that because the critical issue of our safety, sort of whether people live or die is really often left to the local levels where people don't, often don't even know it is their job, you know, to be looking after this thing. And they're not equipped to deal with these huge complicated projects like this. So that's a part of the legal legal system. But when you get down to it, really, there is just emphasize there's no rule against destroying the environment. There's no rule against even putting people at risk to make a buck. Um, but there are a bunch of rules that give people rights to speak up. Thank you for that, Gabe. Um, that was really helpful. Um, to return to something that you just spoke about a little bit, you reiterated something that the coalition has been saying again and again, which is that the state of Oregon does have the right to deny this project. 
we're all in a very strange place right now because we're trying to figure out how it's possible that the state has denied all possible permits and yet the federal government is planning to move forward. Could you clarify for us what if this how the state does have the power and if they do have the power to stop this permit or if the federal government is able to ram this through against uh, the state permission? There are different ways to look at it. I guess the way that it ought to be, you know, the way that the law is that, yeah, absolutely, the state has the right to say no. Um, sort of in the same way that a landowner has the right to say no, you have a right to say what happens on your own land. So I, I guess the, the simplest way to tell the sort of the state story is, is over the last year, there's been this sequence of events as the state addresses its rights relative to the project. And the traditional view or the way that states often use it, the, the old way of doing business, business as usual, would be that um, what's, they applied for what's called a 401 certification under the Clean Water Act. And these are very often just rubber stamps. It's just the state has a say so. The standard is very difficult to violate. It's a really bedrock fundamental rule. Something To violate it, something has to be so bad that you're showing specifically that it's hurting a specific water body's water quality in a specific way that is going to hurt some specific valued use. It's, it's just an impossible standard. Um, and so about a year ago, the state was assist inserting that rule, was using that rule as a meaningful rule. This pipeline crosses so many critical water bodies and it does involve so many bad impacts to fish and water quality. And the pipeline company was being so sort of intransigent, you know, just not doing what you would need to do to get a permit, that they were going to deny it. And so they allowed the, the company to deny its uh, permit application. Seeing the writing on the wall, they were going to get a denial. Rather than get a denial, they said, all right, you know, we'll, with, we'll withdraw it. Time went on, the FERC came out with its final EIS, which theoretically ought to have addressed a lot of these issues. The state seemed to maybe still be waiting to see if Pembina came forward with a really robust, specific permit process. Um, that was a huge disappointment. It was like, a, well, clearly they're viewing National Environmental Policy Act, environmental impacts is just a, a box to check. Um, disregarded the state's comments to the degree that the state was writing angry comment letters to FERC about the EIS which is, you know, normally Cascadia Wildlands will write, you know, angry letters about an EIS, but to see it from the state was, was striking. And then followed rapidly this escalating series of denials where um, not exactly we applied for a permit and now it is denied, but it's sort of everything but. So there were, the federal government released a rubber stamp on endangered species on the same day, the state, or maybe it was the day before, the state protested and objected to the Forest Service and the BLM amending their land use plans to approve the pipeline, which was something our coalition's doing, but the state is doing that as well. They said it didn't meet the mitigation policy, mitigation wasn't sufficient to meet state rules for mitigation, and that their endangered species consultation was for the wrong route. And then the Department of State Lands refused to grant Pembina an uh, extension on their deadline to provide information for their permit for a dredge and fill permit. Um, and so Pembina withdrew the application sort of at the 11th hour. Um, and the, the DSL really held 
tough on that. Vicki Walker really sort of took a stand. They got her letter to Pambina referenced. They got two, we, there were 2,000 people physically commented to her on this application. That, that meant something to her. She was listening. And 40,000, 49,000 people wrote a comment to her. So that was huge and decisive on that. And then most recently and strongest, the DLCD, Land Conservation Development, Jimru, who even knew it existed, but they have objected to the Coastal Zone Management Act approval. Um, and that stops the project in its tracks, unless the Secretary of Commerce uh, overrules them on the basis that he claims the project is beneficial to the state's coastal environment. Um, which is a process that's in play now. The Department of Environmental Quality, uh, Richard Whitman, the DLCD, Jim Rue, DSL, Vicki Walker, all have, by just doing their jobs, by just insisting on the state law being followed, have um, stopped what Pembina had sort of the business as usual is a rubber stamp. By not just being a rubber stamp, um, the state has, has denied it. Also, most clearly, the company has withdrawn even their applications to use state-owned land. So like with the private landowner, like Deb, they're at this point not even asking, like with Deb, they would ask, you know, offer the 2,000 bucks, you know, make the insulting offer. With the state now, they don't even have the insulting offer and um, they're not even applying to use the state land. So who knows what they're going to do, presumably imminent domain, I guess but they have really signed off on the state to where now the relationship with the state is absolutely adversarial. So from our coalition's point of view, that's it's decisive, huge legal difference rather than a huge pile of permits that we have to litigate and navigate. Now we have our government sort of on our side asserting their laws alongside us. And it's, um, so that, that's huge. And that's a thing that's happened just sort of over the last few months and clearly because of the grassroots pressure. Awesome, thank you, Gabe. That was really helpful. Um, it's good to hear that we have the backing of the state of Oregon with such strong support um, in their permit denials and in the comments that they made on those. Um, in transition now to our last panelist, Kaila Farrell-Smith. I see your face on the video now. Um, great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. Kaila is a Klamath Modoc visual artist, mentor, and anti-frack gas activist based in Southern Oregon. Her work has been exhibited around the Pacific Northwest and is permanently on display at the Jordan Schnitzer Museum of Art on the University of Oregon campus and the Portland Art Museum. She is an esteemed organizer with the No LNG Coalition and also co-director of Signal Fire, an organization that connects artists to wild places. Thank you, Kaila, for joining us. Um, I want to just ask you, how did you get involved with this fight um, and why, as a Klamath indigenous activist, this fight against Jordan Cove is so important to you? Hi, yeah, thanks for inviting me. Um, it's great to see all your faces this evening. Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, just a little background with um, who I am. I am a visual artist, but I've also been in environmental um, advocacy and activism since I graduated from undergraduate school. I mean, my whole life, I grew up with a picket sign in my, in my hands in Eugene. My father, Al Smith, um, you know, fought the U.S. government. And so, that, you know, being an activist and fighting back is just how I was raised. Um, I went to Washington, D.C. for my father's court case when I was seven years old, um, Al Smith versus Oregon. 
Um, so that's that kind of that activism is always in, in my blood and in my um, family. Um, I went to Standing Rock in 2016. I was working in the art tent. I met my um, Samix, my uh, a fellow tribal member and um, co-colleague and artist, Asa Wright, who's also a Modoc and Klamath. And so we worked in the art tent together and, um, you know, I laid down uh, prayers and did prayer flags and I grew up in this uh, native ceremonial community. Um, and, you know, we really at that moment just wanted to put our prayers down and, um, and put our work down and, um, you know, at Oshete uh, Shako in camp. And because um, we, knew, we knew that this fight was coming to us um, in Southern Oregon. So at that moment, you know, my life completely changed. I had spent, you know, eight years um, getting into my art and really wanting to build out my art practice. So I've been doing that hand in hand and then, um, this specific pipeline fight has has very much aligned with my art practice, um, but really like walking these two paths of art and activism has always been tricky, but really it was this kind of long, you know, it was this um, connecting to the, the water protectors fight in, at Standing Rock and um, being a headwaters uh, protectors as the Klamath tribe is, you know, we're the water, we're a watershed here, the head waters of many different rivers. And, um, my, I, you know, drink stream water. I, I, I harvest my own water. Um, umbo, umbo is our uh, Klamath word for water. And so, you know, I, me and my partner, Kale and our dog Pele, um, are really, you know, devoted our entire lives to wanting to, um, to stand up for this, to this fight and why it's important to protect um, our clean water um, because as you know we all know water is life um, and literally it is our chawam our sucker fish we want to bring you know our salmon our chials back up to, um, we haven't had our salmon swimming in these streams for my dad's whole life so over 100 years you know, this is, I'm a, a contemporary artist, I'm a painter, but I'm also um, a mentor and I've mentored a lot of indigenous youth. We want to be able to move forward in teaching um, the young people our traditional ways. So whether that's harvesting tule and cattail, um, we're basket weavers, master basket weavers. So getting back to harvesting those materials and all of that and healthy, you know, having healthy materials, we need healthy water and we need to clean up the upper Klamath lakes up here um, with algae and and um, yeah, we're really also tied to the suckerfish, the Chuan fight. And so, you know, I'm looking forward. We definitely have to stop this pipeline, but you know, the water protecting water protector issues are ongoing in the Klamath Basin. Thank you, Kaila, for your incredible work um, over all of these years fighting this destructive project. As you mentioned, indigenous voices have been central in the fight against fossil fuel extraction, not just against the Jordan Cove project, but all the way across North America from Standing Rock to Jordan Cove. Um, tribes have been front and center in battles for land and water. Uh, the Kruk, Yurok, and Klamath tribes have all passed resolutions opposing the Jordan Cove pipeline. Um, and there's a lot of strong leaders um, from indigenous communities in that fight. I'm hoping you can just tell us a bit about what the role that you've seen of indigenous organizing is in opposition to Jordan Cove and fossil fuels and also how allies can support indigenous-led resistance in these struggles? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, well, growing up, like I said, growing up in Oregon, um, how do I explain this? I mean, this is um, this is really deep. You know, land talking about land and water, uh, water 
and land is very sacred to indigenous people. It's the origin. It's how our languages, our indigenous languages are linked to a place. See, that's what an indigenous, indigenous is, is where you're from. So our origin stories, our language, our um, myth, mythologies, all of that's linked and connected to land and place. So um, we are in, inherently connected with protecting land and, and water and um, as we move forward. So indigenous people are at the forefront um, and we need to listen to indigenous voices and respect indigenous voices at, at the core of this. And that was really the training that I saw that was happening at Standing Rock, which was of the most importance because this is about power and um, it's a power shift. It's a paradigmatic shift. We're um, looking at, um, you know, of, of worlds flipping over, of, of, of um, a, we need to change our worldview from an extractive resource to reciprocal relationships with land and, and water and indigenous people can teach us that and so even at the core of this and in Oregon um, with the Klamath tribes we were terminated in the 1950s so when I say on the former Klamath reservation we don't have any land so even right now what's going on people are worried that Trump will be bringing back you know termination era we've already gone through that with the Klamath tribes so they took all of our land um, in the 1950s that was what my father lived through here Edison Chiliquin um, was the only Klamath who didn't sell his land and we still have uh, the earth lodge in the kitchen and the sacred fire. And um, I actually approved some small grants for some Klamath tribal members through Southern Oregon Rising Tide who are going to be rebuilding those sacred places. So, you know, that's what, that's what needs to be happening right now is we need to be going back to these ancient ways and traditions and Native people have those teachings. We still have those ways. We have our songs and languages. We're, it's almost lost. Um, you know, I'm going to say that in the year 2020, there's a lot that's been lost and that's been the core of my research in as a, uh, especially getting my master's degree in fine art and contemporary art practices. A lot of that was my focus was being able to speak to what has been lost already. And that's my generation. Um, I don't, you know, I grew up speaking English, not Klamath, my father's generation, the boarding school era, era. Um, he was born in 1919. So in the 1920s, a hundred years ago, um, you know, they were stealing indigenous children and putting them in boarding schools, beating them if they spoke Klamath or their native tongues. And so we've already gone through that forced erasure and we're being faced with it again. And so um, like Klebanali and other indigenous activists say, we don't need allies, we need accomplices. Um, and so that needs to be really uh, understood. Um, and through this fight, I've seen some accomplices and this administration is turning every is turning America into a reservation. So, you know, I hope that everybody understands what has happened to indigenous people. Um, and you're on, you're next. And that's always what my dad said. My dad would say that he said this in the 1990s or yeah, it was in the nineties after his interview to Berkeley law school. And he said, you better pay attention because the what's happening, what happened with his case. And he lost that case. Uh, Scalia screwed us. Um, but he said, you, what happened in this case, you need to pay attention because he's like, I hear whispers in the legal and then the legal world that where this is going to lead to is a, is a police state. And he said, what's happening here to us, you better pay attention because you have a lot of work ahead of you. And um, yeah, now we're living through it. So my dad had a lot of warnings about this time, as did as many of the indigenous elders uh, and indigenous fighters and land defenders, you know, who we've been in this fight for a long time. So we welcome everybody to the fight um, and we need, we're going to all need to work together to be able to um, 
squash this pure evil that's that's coming after us. But when we're all healthy, you know, we need to shut this thing down. And if that means if that means revolution, then that's what that means. So yeah, yeah. Thank you. Throw, um, throw that's an amazing and powerful note. Um, yes, if that means resistance, then that's what we do. And so here we are um, talking about that right now. And I see a few uh, questions that have been sent to me privately and also to the some that have been sent to the whole group. And a lot of them are um, theming around what are the next steps? Um, what are like the concrete next steps for each of these different areas? And so, um, and yes, how can we be accomplices? That's a great question as well. Um, thank you, Jack. Starting with you, Kayla, and just going backwards through Gabe and Deb, if you all could just give like a 30 second response to like, what is next for your resistance? What do you want to plug right now? If there's anything that you haven't said? Well, how can you be accomplices? And um, that's what, basically what we saw at Standing I'm just going to give an example at Standing Rock. We were being trained um, on how to protest and fight, you know, protest and walk. And we had the indigenous women in the middle, the water protectors, and everybody else around. And then, you know, the, the veterans were there and they, they played the role, they role played the part of, uh, the, of the pipeline uh, cops. And um, they attacked us. They have, they're trained in how to divide and uh, conquer us. And it was all the brown women that got arrested right away. And all the white people ended up being in the middle of that um, mock fight and so that's what i'm scared of like i don't want to be the brown woman that ends up getting arrested because that's i'm who they want to arrest right so we saw that happen at standing rock and so that's what we mean when we say we need like we need to get we need to be protected indigenous women and the indigenous youth need to be protected but with bodies so that's to how to be accomplices as to what's next stay healthy stay inside stay quarantined we are all the smallpox blanket now um see out there or and stay healthy until then <laughs> thank you Kayla. thanks thank, thank you. you um gabe do you want to do 30 seconds and then deb 30 seconds what's next you should jump to deb because that's one of the top priority groups to defend the leaders in the fight of the state keep on top of them but the landowners um really are you know if you have 10 bucks to give that's where you should give it so deb take her away the legal fight is is next yeah, thank, thank you, Gabe. Thank you, Sam. Um, I really have appreciated this conversation. And I, I don't know if I have any more words of wisdom. I mean, I think that use your own diversity, use what you know, use, speak up, use your voice, speak up to anybody and everybody who will listen. I think for landowners, yes, it's partly a money thing that we do need. But I think just supporting people, um, landowners included, giving them a pat on the back, being there for them. I think it's a frightening time for a lot of people and people are not sure how they're going to navigate it. Um, we're, you know, we're, we've got multiple things that we're frightened of. Uh, nobody wants right now anybody coming to their door to serve papers or for any other reason. Keep thinking about people, keep reaching out, keep reaching out to the people you know, use your own talent to go forward. Um, the legal battle, we got, just got a note yesterday, um, you know, maybe offering some more pro bono legal services. I mean, that's gonna be great if that materializes. So I think just using whatever you already, connections that you already have, and don't, don't hesitate at all to reach out to me or other landowners with whatever you think that you can offer and we would be more than gracious for anything. So thank you all for all you've done. We really, really appreciate it.
Amazing. Yes. Thank you. One last time to all of our panelists. We um, One way to get involved right now that is really useful is to just send a thank you to some of our Oregon elected officials who have taken really strong stances in defense of Oregonians against the pipeline. Um, you can also tune in to next Tuesday's Wild Chat, which is going to be a workshop, an interactive workshop on how to write letters to the editor themed at writing um, in defense of public lands and wild places um, and stopping the Jordan Cove pipeline specifically. So that will be next Tuesday, um, same place, same time. Um, and also, if you live in Eugene and want to get more plugged in, Cascadia Wildlands has an amazing and vibrant volunteer team called the Wildcats. And we meet regularly and we do all kinds of actions in the forest and the course in the streets and writing now in the papers. Um, and we're always looking for more members to plug in and get involved. Um, but please do take a moment, check out the Arland Our Lives website, check out um, all of the incredible work that folks on this panel have been doing, and throw in where you can. Thank you all so much for taking the time out of your day to be here. Wonderful to see your faces. Please stay healthy, stay strong out there, and keep fighting. Till next time. This is Conservation Today, and you have been listening to the April 7th Wild Chat webinar from Cascadia Wildlands on the community resistance to Jordan Cove. I am your host, Francis Etherington, and we will be back in a couple of weeks. <music>